Welcome to the podcast, everybody. The podcast is Tanner Talks About Stuff That Happened. As always, I am Tanner, and I'm going to be talking about some stuff that happened. And the stuff that happened that we are getting into today is the Eastern-Western Divide, particularly concerning holistic medicine. It's a lot to unpack, so we're going we're gonna to skim over that as quickly as we possibly can. Now, this podcast is going to be a little bit different because this is actually an assignment that I'm doing for one of my classes. Uh, so, my class, if you're listening, thank you for listening, and uh, enjoy the show. Now, if you enjoy the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and drop a five-star review. And even if you feel so inclined, give me something nice to read because, um, you know, it does give me that little ego boost and it gets more people involved in the conversations about history. It's a win-win. So without further ado, let's move on to the show. To start things off, we are going back to the 4th century AD, so hold on tight boys and girls. Here we are, 313 AD, and the Edict of Milan has just been passed. Why is that important? Well, up until 313 AD, the practice of Christianity was expressly illegal in the Roman Empire, and it wasn't really glamorous to be Christian in Europe at the time. The Edict of Milan, however, somewhat changed this and legalized the practice of Christianity in the nation. Now, you wouldn't believe it, but less than a century later, century is not a long time, less than a century later, the Roman Empire has done a complete 180, and in 380 AD, the Edict of Thessalonica is passed, which doesn't not just make Christianity legal, but it makes Christianity the state religion of the Romans, which effectively spreads it through most of mainland Europe and even into the British Isles, where it remains the dominant religion in most all of Europe, even in the modern age. Christianity was new, but religion was not. In the meantime, and for thousands of years before, other religions had been spreading across the rest of the world, east of Rome. In China, Buddhism had already been around for almost a thousand years. In India, Hinduism, for twice that, at least and Judaism about the same. But very quickly, Christianity took the same hold on Europe as the Eastern religions took on their respective areas. And this is where we start experiencing what would come to be known as the East-West Schism, though only ever so slightly right now. The roots grow deeper in the 8th century AD when the Emperor Charlemagne is crowned over the Holy Roman Empire. Why does this matter? Well, Charlemagne was crowned by the Pope. Can you read between the lines there? If the emperor is crowned by the Pope, it means that the Pope is a higher power than the emperor, which by extension means that the Catholic Church is the highest power over the Holy Roman Empire. And as a result, the Church had a firm hand in establishing a lot of the laws that were passed. If you're familiar with medieval religious history, it was illegal to translate the Bible into the common tongue, punishable by death. Weird law? Well, look at it this way. As long as the public couldn't interpret the Bible for themselves, they had to rely on the teachings of the clergy and the interpretation of the Bible by said clergy for guidance, putting the clergy at the forefront of religious thought. The clergy was untouchable and revered by the people. This made all citizens of the Holy Roman Empire and surrounding countries voluntarily subject to the Catholic Church. And here we get to the next chapter in the Eastern-Western Schism, which is the Crusades. 
Christianity viewed Jerusalem and much of Israel as a holy land, where Christ had been born and done much of his ministry. The papacy thought that the Holy Land, at that point, under control of the Seljuk Turks, would be better utilized if under the thumb of the church. So they began preparations to lead a holy army to take it, but there were a few necessities that needed to be filled before this could be possible. Obviously, they needed an army. Who would be willing to fight for God above any king or country? How did they make this happen? The church launches a propaganda campaign. It is time for a definition. What is propaganda? You're probably familiar with the term propaganda, but this term is thrown around a lot these days, so let's clarify. What is propaganda? Propaganda is information, especially of a biased or misleading nature, used to promote or publicize a particular political cause or point of view. Essentially, any information slanted to favor a certain cause. In this case, the information was slanted to label the Seljuk Turks as heathens and infidels. In doing so, they utilized a common wartime technique, the dehumanization of the enemy. Why did they do that? Well, simple. It's much easier to kill something if it's not human. So why do I tell you this and what does it have to do with medicine? Well, during the Crusades, the dehumanization of the enemies of the Catholic Church had much more devastating and far-reaching effects than the papacy could have ever hoped for. The dehumanization of the Seljuk Turks spread like wildfire when the Crusaders came home from the Crusades, and anyone who didn't wholly subscribe to the Catholic Church was subject to the whims of this propaganda. This led to events such as the Spanish Inquisition, as well as the infamous massacre of Cathari people ordered by Pope Innocent III. Now, the Cathari were Christians, but not Catholic. In fact, because they weren't Catholic, the Pope had labeled them as Satanists. And that's how deep this propaganda ran. But this was child's play when compared to what I'm going to capitalize on here. Eventually, travelers from the East brought stories of strange religions that dominated their lands, which horrified the clergymen of the church. In addition, they began hearing tales of curious forms of medicine never before dreamed of in Europe. The curiosity of Europeans in investigating these different types of healing was starting to steal control from the Catholic Church. So the Church doubled down. They declared that anything not expressly cleared by the Catholic Church was pagan. It is time for definition number two of the day. What does being pagan mean? Or what does, if something is pagan or someone practices paganism, what does this mean? Well, to clarify something really quick, paganism means something different today than it did in the Middle Ages. In the Middle Ages, to call someone pagan was essentially to say they were inferior to you, a Catholic. So, to be pagan meant you were godless, and therefore an enemy to Christ, and therefore an enemy to the Catholic Church, and therefore an enemy to the highest authority in the land. Today, to be pagan essentially means you don't subscribe to one of the major world religions. People who self-identify as pagan generally mean they are polytheistic, believing in many gods, pantheistic, believing that the divine exists in all things, or animistic, the belief that all things possess spiritual essence. But this labeling of anything non-Catholic as pagan adopted that same dehumanization technique as we saw during the Crusades, and unfortunately, it was massively effective. 
Through this, we see the first real tendrils of aversion to Eastern lifestyle that would grow into really what can only be described as an inferno. When it came to medicine, here we are, we're finally there, we'll talk about medicine. When it came to medicine at this time, during the Middle Ages, European medicine was overseen strictly by the Catholic Church, and all doctors were subjected to the whims of such. Most hospitals were in buildings that were ordained by the clergy, and they were overseen by clergymen. All healing techniques had to be approved by the clergy, and in any case, doctors were regularly shunned by the public, as it was believed that the church would provide anything they needed. To put it simply, the health of Europe on the whole was in a downward spiral for the majority of the Dark Ages, but conversely, many developments were happening in the lands further east of Europe. In China and India, important advancements were being made that would not enter into Europe until the 19th century or later, as early as 2000 BC, such as the use of the horsetail plant to treat respiratory problems. Further investigations led to the introduction of the chakra theory, which dictates that there are seven chakras that manage the flow of energy throughout the human body. And as the theory goes, when these chakras are out of balance, that leads to health problems. Acupuncture is also, pra is also a practice invented in Eastern cultures. In Tibet, Buddhist monks begin using specially made metal instruments called singing bowls as a method of healing illnesses through the use of vibrations. Now, all of this sounds kind of crazy to somebody who may have grown up in the West, right? I have a lot of friends who don't believe in alternative healing techniques. This is normal to me to th see this as kind of strange. But in the modern age, many Western chiropractors and alternative healers have begun adopting acupuncture as a viable means to correct or treat chronic health issues. And the extract from the horsetail plant was used in the 1920s to create ephedrine, which is still used to treat asthma. Now, if the Eastern cultures were onto something in 2000 BC, stands to reason maybe they were onto some other stuff. Now, listen to this. In the 21st century, a method called acoustic wave therapy has been introduced in Western cultures with proven results as a method of restoring muscle vitality, joint pain, and even erectile dysfunction. But was Europe into this? Absolutely not. Anyone who tried using any of these remedies was slapped with the title of witch, and often executed for their crimes against the church. Pope Innocent VIII decreed, again, that anything non-Catholic was heathen worship, and anyone practicing it would be persecuted until dead. A bit harsh, but we do have to take into consideration what was going on at the time. The Mongols were coming from the east, pillaging and burning and raping and destroying everything in their path, and the Ottomans were coming from the south. Not necessarily as vicious, but still, they were Muslim, and therefore an enemy to the Catholic Church. Europe was deeply threatened by foreign invaders, and the Catholic Church was the highest power. The only protection against the great heathen armies the xenophobia the Church had sought to create was consolidated by these foreign invasions. And the Eastern-Western Schism was absolutely solidified. And there it would remain for half a millennia. 
But outside of Europe, things were looking up in the medical field. While Europe was being ravaged by plagues, which they viewed as punishment by God and not a disease that was infectious, preventable, and treatable, Arab scholars were discovering long-lost Greek texts and translating them to Arabic, adding their own research into the mix. We still have those documents today, and they still somewhat hold up in modern science. While medical science in Europe festered and decayed, medical schools were set up across the Arab world to further developments in the medical field. And it wouldn't be until the Renaissance that Europe would finally come to its senses and realize that if someone was coughing, maybe you should give them something for it. Even after the Renaissance, a distinct difference became apparent between Eastern ideologies of medicine and Western. I mean, okay, let, let's put it into the absolute simplest terms we possibly can. These are the fundamentals of Western and Eastern medicine. Fundamentally, Western medicine views the body as a machine. If a part goes bad, you have to fix that part by any means necessary to achieve the peak production once again. This is where we see the pharmaceutical industry show up. Eastern medicine, however, views the body more as a garden, which needs to be constantly nurtured in order to thrive. In Eastern medicine also, emphasis is put on the emotional, psychological, and spiritual side of health. Now, if you go into a Western doctor, do they ever ask you how you're feeling emotionally, how your thoughts are psychologically, and the more spiritual side of your health? Do they ever talk about chakras? Not usually. Occasionally, there are doctors who will go into things like that, but not usually. Western medicine is very focused on fixing the broken piece. And this divide would continue in earnest until the 1800s. And in the 1800s, scientists begin intermingling and realizing that they actually have a lot in common. As I stated before, practices of the East are slowly finding their way into the West. As stated previously, Acoustic wave therapy is becoming more of a viable alternative to medication, taking hints from the ancient Buddhist therapies. Acupuncture, instead of being practiced only in Eastern cultures, is now available in many general chiropractic offices of the United States. The study of chakras is no longer strictly a hippie idea. It's also a rel relatively mainstream belief capitalized on by kinesiologists and even possibly your occupational therapist. While the East-West Divide has deep and very complicated roots, with the advent of the World Wide Web and the globalization of the planet, the cultural diffusion has exposed many Westerners to the ideas of Eastern medicine and broken down the barriers created by the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages, leading to a potentially more natural health experienced by those who attempt to try what was once forbidden. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. Again, I'd like to remind you that this is not a regular podcast episode. This podcast was strictly intended for my history of scientific thought class that I'm taking through a university. So for the class who is listening, thank you guys for listening. Um, and my professor who was listening, I hope I did a good job. Uh, <laughs> And thanks for listening. Um, again, if you enjoy the podcast, please head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and drop me a five-star review and maybe even leave me something nice to say. It really does help us get more people involved with the conversations about history, as well as give me the little ego boost that I so much enjoy. Not necessary, just enjoyable. I will catch you all in a few weeks once my finals week is over. And until then, 
Enjoy your weekend. Hey, happy holidays. I'll catch y'all later.